Okay, welcome to the Plexus podcast series. Today we are with Dr. Julie Woolman of Widener University. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Glad to join you. So let's go ahead and start off with your background. Uh, why education? Walk us through your background and, and what led you to the presidency. Oh gosh, that's a long, <laughs> it's a long journey. Um, so I, um, I've always been interested in, in teachers who in, inspired me. Um, and when I went to college, I thought that I wanted to be a lawyer maybe, um, but I became increasingly interested in um, the quality of education. And so I was an undergraduate at Harvard where there isn't as much attention to teaching undergraduates as there is to doing research. And I actually felt like that, that was a weakness and that I thought teaching was really important and the quality of the undergraduate education was really important. I had some wonderful professors um, and I learned a great deal, but um, I became increasingly interested in um, the quality of education and in teaching. And so by the time I graduated, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And I started my career as uh, a um, K-12 teacher. I got a master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania in um, education. And um, as I was, you know, as I was in my first year of teaching, and, and then um, I had some professors who said to me, you know, you really should get a PhD and consider teaching it, you know, in higher education. And so I did. Eventually, I got my PhD at New York University, and I began to work as a faculty member in higher education. And from there, um, I think what happens is if you're successful at what you do, people ask you to do something different, which is kind of weird. But because you think if you were good at what you did, you'd want to keep that person there. So I was asked to move into administrative roles and, and gradually made my way to the presidency. It was not my intention at all, really, um, at the beginning of my career or even in the middle of my career. I love teaching. I love working with students. I love writing and doing research. I think education is transformative. And that's why I've spent my entire career in education. I think it has the power to transform lives. And I think we have a responsibility to make sure that that's what it does. And that's why the quality of that education is so important. Have you been able to apply anything that you've done from that faculty standpoint? Have you been able to keep some of those elements in your day-to-day -to -day as an administrator? Absolutely. So um, I think everything we do is is about teaching, honestly. And even as I plan meetings, whether it's weekly meetings or retreats for our leadership team, I always think about it as you're trying to teach something. So how do you structure this meeting or this retreat as the best quality learning experience? Um, and so I absolutely keep that in mind all the time. I also have been able to teach throughout my years as an administrator. Um, and so I've, I've, as a, as a, um, as a dean, as a, as a vice president and, and as a president, I've taught, um, it, uh, first year seminars, I've taught graduate classes, 
And I've also, and I think teaching first year seminar is really, if you want to know what's going on with your college students, that's a great place to do it. And I also teach in the local prison. Um, I teach um, classes for incarcerated men in the, at, the, at the prison in Chester, along with a couple other colleagues who are very committed to that work. And that also is really about education as transformation and creating opportunities. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about your strategic planning process. So it starts with saying, we've got to throw out the idea of strategic planning. Um, and a strategic plan is an outdated idea. What we mm -hmm. need is a strategy. A strategy is a guiding vision, a guiding you know, set of principles that is adaptable to a very rapidly changing higher education environment. So that my idea was, we're not doing a strategic plan, we're developing a strategy that positions us to thrive in a rapidly changing environment. We started the process in fall of 2019. Before a year was out, obviously we were in the pandemic and everything changed even more rapidly than we expected. Um, and uh, you know, the pandemic really just accelerated all of the changes that were happening in higher education and also added some other more interest, you know, some interesting challenges on top of that. So our strategy was, was really, per the idea of a strategy was perfect because it had to be adaptable, it had to work with changes. It wasn't set in stone. We weren't gonna have a strategic plan that was written out and set on a shelf with 80 goals that you know everybody chose something from the menu that they liked. What I think happens with those, that kind of strategic planning is you essentially get more of the same. You get a commitment to enhance what you're already doing or to increase enrollment or to you know, expand whatever you're doing instead of really thinking about what is going to move us forward, not just doing more of the same. And so that's, that's where we were headed with our strategy. Um, we we had we used a scenario um, development process, so we created we used a lot of creative tools. We used design thinking, and we developed scenarios for what our future might look like. And that helped us get to the strategy of agility experienced, which is focused on being an agile university that puts the student experience first and creates an exceptional student experience, which is all about user experience really and um, the, the notion of user experience and, and, and business process improvement alongside um, agility and ability to adapt constantly to what was happening in the world. When the pandemic happened, we saw, wow, this was really, we're headed in the right direction. And so that's, that's how we got to where we are. We, I did not have a process that involved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and creating all these different little pieces of the plan, which is far more typical, but rather I brought together some of the most creative minds at the university, about 18 people, not necessarily the people you would normally choose, not by role, but by how creative they were and how willing they were to think outside the box. And that really helped us to get to um, where we ended up. Gosh, that's, yeah, that's great. And that, that is, yeah, that's very unique. And um, you know, when you look at Pennsylvania, when you look at the Northeast, nationwide, 
the market is competitive, very competitive. Yes. Yeah. So uh, tell me a few ways that, that Widener competes and really differentiates, differentiates itself in a saturated market. Yes, it is so saturated. I use that term a lot myself. So I, I, I appreciate that you're using that term, not just Pennsylvania, but the Philadelphia area, Southeastern Pennsylvania, our region, which of course includes South Jersey and Delaware, as well as um, the whole Philadelphia region is more saturated with higher education institutions even than Boston. And people often think Boston is the one that has the greatest saturation. So um, it is an, an exceptionally competitive and it's a very um, quickly changing demographic. Um, so we know that in, um, the, in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast, we have a declining number of traditional age high school students. Um, and we have rapidly increasing diversity, which is a fantastic opportunity for us to grow um, and learn and become a better, um, a better university. Widener, when I arrived six years ago, was, had a large number of graduate programs, including two law schools. We're one of the very few universities in the country that has one law school almost, I think there's one other that has two law schools at this point. These things change um, sometimes. But, um, and so this, and then we, we recognized that a growth area for us was graduate programs. So while I have been president, we um, were close to being half graduate students. We are now more than half graduate students, including our law schools, um, about 53% graduate students. We've added graduate programs in areas that are in high demand and we've made them distinctive. So we're adding programs in health sciences, um, including um, programs like um, speech language pathology, occupational therapy to complement our nationally recognized physical therapy program and our nationally recognized clinical psychology and social work programs, um, physician assistant, other you know, health sciences areas, nutrition is another program we're working on. What makes them different? First of all, there's huge workforce demand and, and need for those programs, but we have a, a um, commitment to interprofessional um, work in healthcare. And so our students take classes together across those programs. They also collaborate with our nursing programs and our nursing School of Nursing is a center for excellence um, in nursing as recognized nationally by um, the uh, League of Nursing, the National Nursing League. Um, and uh, with our biomedical engineering program where there's a lot of collaboration and with our, our MBA and healthcare management. So it's all about collaboration, interprofessional preparation. Our students come out of these programs ready to work in teams, which is how they actually work in, um, in, their, in their career setting. So we talk about um, across the university, we prepare students for the inside track. We give them the inside track. And that means they don't, when they graduate, they're not just starting their careers, they're continuing their career. And you've probably seen this in our, in our marketing material. They're continuing the career they've already started. But this is exactly what we're talking about. We actually have the proof points to show that we do it. For example, with our, our growth and graduate programs, our focus on interprofessional health care is one example. 
this is how people actually work in the field. And we are one of the very few programs where you actually do it while you're being trained. You're working in a team, you're working interprofessionally. So you're, you're already, you're ready to hit the ground running. You're already running when you, when you start your, your first career. So that's one distinctive aspect. A lot of collaboration across a lot of um, complementary programs, as I, as I mentioned previously. Um, a clear focus on experiential learning and research opportunities that students can start when they're in their first year at the university. And then recognizing that our community of Chester, which is one of the most challenged um, socioeconomically in, uh, well, the most challenged in the, in the state of Pennsylvania, is actually a huge opportunity for us to make a difference and to help students see how you take what you're learning in your class and, and apply it. And the problems that we're dealing with locally are global problems. So when you learn how to solve a problem like uh, healthcare inequity or, or, or um, food insecurity or um, climate issues in a city like Chester, those are global issues. You can do that anywhere. You can take that knowledge and, and apply it anywhere. So we think we have a really distinctive opportunity there. We're also only about 20 minutes outside of Philadelphia, so great opportunities for internships and co-ops there. So it's really an interesting combination of a lot of opportunities um, that make Widener distinctive. We also, because we're more than half graduate, have pathways out of every one of our undergraduate programs into graduate programs that students can do in a three plus one or a three plus two, depending on the length of the graduate program, a three plus three in some cases, um, so that they actually finish, they get the graduate degree, but they finish a year sooner than they would otherwise and get out into their careers. Well, that's great. You just covered a big question <laughs> of mine about the graduates yeah. and, and the salaries earned by your graduates and placement. So that's phenomenal. Talk to me a little bit about how you create candid conversations about diversity and inclusion. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, and I should have I, I should have mentioned in my in my previous answer as well as you just mentioned that the, these the salary our students are in the top twenty percent in the country and the salaries they earn coming out of undergraduate as well as graduate so lots of success there. So, um, after the election in twenty sixteen, I recognized that we had first of all I think we all recognized as a country that there was there were a lot of different perspectives that we weren't listening to, that each one of us had our little filter bubble that we had created of people who believed the same things that we did and, and, and would likely vote the same way that we would. And we, we I think, felt a sort of um, sense after that election of, oh, wait, there's a lot of people who think differently than I do. Because, I mean, the vote was, was so close and, and, and surprising. So um, I realized that one of the things that we weren't doing as a country, and I'm not the only one who realized this, there's a lot of people who talked about this and wrote about this, was really listening to each other and understanding the different perspectives. Um, and I felt as a university, we had a responsibility to teach people to do that. We talk about bringing diverse groups together but they often don't listen to each other or talk to each other. So it seemed like a great opportunity to teach something fundamental 
for um, students who are going to go out and become citizens and leaders in our country, whether they're small L leaders leading in their own communities or in their own teams at work, or big L leaders like elected officials or those who are going to be making you know, major decisions for our country, they, they need a, a, a better way of thinking about how do we listen to people who are different from us. And I really believe, although I have my own very strong convictions, of course, as well, personally, but I do believe that most of us really want the same thing. Our goals are common. Our understanding of how to get there may vary a great deal. And that's why I created the Common Ground Initiative. Can we find common ground across our differences? Can we learn to talk to each other in thoughtful um, ways that re reflect civility instead of screaming at each other or walking away when we disagree, which I think just isn't productive and is not what we're trying to teach at the university. I don't mean to downplay how hard it is to listen to somebody who believes something very different from me. We all have a hard time with that. Um, there's no question. I have, a, you know, I, as a, I am a person as well who has my own beliefs, as I said, and we have a hard time with that. But that was the challenge of it is how do we listen to people who have very different beliefs? And how do we model that at the university? And so we, we, I thought we had a great opportunity as a learning institution to bring together our students, our faculty and our staff in conversations that we call common ground conversations across the university, across different perspectives. And in every conversation, we have that mix of students, faculty, staff, and people bringing different perspectives. And we could model, how do you sit together and listen without saying you're wrong or, or, or I don't agree with you? Listen, hear people out, and then have a conversation. And of course, what happens is people realize that they are closer together in what they want and that there might sometimes be some sense behind behavior or beliefs that you think are crazy <laughs> or whatever, you know, whatever. I mean, I'm not sure it's something you call crazy, but a lot of times people are like, that's crazy. I can't believe you believe that. Um, and so I think it's, it's part of educating um, people for a better future for our country. And that, you know, that's really what the, the project was. And we were fortunate enough that there was national interest in it, um, did some sessions at, at South by Southwest and um, here at the National Constitution Center, and uh, were able to write about this a little bit and, um, you know, really developed some interest in the, um, in the process that we had. And we continue to have these conversations. Um, they're scheduled regularly. And one thing we found from the pandemic is when you have to do it by Zoom because there's no other choice, you actually get a lot more people attending. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure, if, I, mean, I think part of it is it's just more convenient. And part of it is it's easier to click into a Zoom than it is to walk into a room when you don't know exactly what's gonna happen. And it's a mix of people. You're a student, now you're coming in with professors and older people and, you know, so I think it just makes it easier to join and to participate and to join and just listen. Sometimes we try to, we want everyone to participate, but sometimes participation means just listening. Yeah. 
Now, I know that uh, you have multiple modalities. You offer online. So speak to that a little bit. You talked about how, you know, I guess, first of all, the question that I would have is how do you make sure that you impress upon the mission, your strategy, what you've talked about? How do you make sure that that resonates with students that are online as well as students that are on campus? Right, right. And it's a great question. You know, how do you get them into the culture of the university um, and make them feel like they're connected? And I think a lot of that is about our faculty themselves who are so dedicated to students, who are so focused on the, you know, meeting the individual's needs, understanding where they're coming from, working directly with them. So we have a very student-centric um, approach and we have faculty who are dedicated and will you know, do anything they can to, to engage students. So we've got that. We've got to focus on the quality of our online or hybrid classes. Um, and our, our, online cl our, our online classes are, are generally offered just for graduate in graduate programs and for um, our continuing studies. So uh, older undergraduates, undergraduates who aren't traditional age, but slightly older um, and sometimes considerably older than traditional age undergraduates. Um, and with, with these classes, our focus is on the quality of the class, the quality of the education. So we have a wonderful team of instructional designers. We've continued to build that team with an increasing number of instructional designers so we can support faculty in offering the best quality online education. We actually find that our online students get engaged in things like our common ground conversations when they're online. They come to other events um, at the university and we encourage them to, to be engaged and their professors encourage them to be engaged in, um, in those opportunities whenever they, they can do it. We have the same challenge. I don't know if this is something you were gonna ask me about, but I think it's actually very interesting now in the um, pandemic, we have the same challenge with remote employees. So mm -hmm. as you know, a lot of organizations now are recognizing they, in order to attract talent and to retain talent, they need to offer flexible work schedules. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that means in some fields, particularly the most competitive fields like um, IT, where you're trying to hire an instructional designer who's the most talented instructional designer, they don't need to work in person and you can't necessarily hire the most talented person if you expect them to move across the country and work in, you know, on your campus. But you can if they can work remotely. And so we're facing the same interesting challenge of how do we orient new people to our culture and make them a part of our community because community and collegiality are so fundamental to what we do on our campus. It's just a it's very much a part of the Widener DNA that it's about relationships and collegiality and community. How do we orient them to that if they have never been on our campus and may never be on our campus? It's a little bit different when people are working a flexible work schedule and they may be working remotely a couple of days a week and then they're on campus. But when they're fully remote, it's an interesting challenge. And certainly we're not alone in having to deal with that. Every organization that's doing this is dealing with this 
this challenge and how do we create that environment and, and build the relationships um, that you want to build as people are finding that technology allows us to be much more flexible in where we work. Dr. Wilmer, I have a lot of questions, so I'll, I'll jump into them. <laughs> Very fascinating. So we would like our audience to learn a little bit more about your institution. You established in 1821. Uh, your old main and chemistry building are registered as historical places, right? And you started, the university started from Delaware, and, and I know you're also still active there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the legacy and the historical prominence of your institutions and the journey it's taken to this day. It's really interesting history because the university, like many um, older, you know, we're over 200 years old, um, uh, colleges and universities didn't start as a university. It didn't start as a college. It started as a boarding school. And it started as a Quaker boarding school. And of course, um, Quakers were very prominent in the, in the region and started a, a large number of, of schools um, as well as um, colleges in our region. Mm -hmm. So it started as a Quaker, which is, of course, as we know, Quakerism is a pacifist um, faith um, and then became Pennsylvania Military College, which I think is just <laughs> sort of, you know, you're at the opposite ends of the continuum <laughs> there on, on what you're doing. But when um, the, the boarding school moved, um, it became a, a college and moved to our current site in Pennsylvania, which is actually only 10 minutes from the Delaware border. So we're very, very close to Delaware and New Jersey. But, you know, the southeastern Pennsylvania, that little corner is really Philadelphia, southern New Jersey, and Delaware. Um, so it, it became, uh, it was a military college and Pennsylvania Military College um, was in existence for a long time until the um, you know, mid 1900s after the Vietnam War when so many people were choosing not to go into military service and um, there just wasn't a way to sustain the college without admitting civilians. And so they start, the, the, the admission of civilians began along with um, uh, okay. cadets. I can sorry. I apologize. It's a good thing that you have. It's Siri, because if I say anything with an S like civilian, she thinks I'm talking to her. Um, I'm not talking to you. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, so, um, but you produced this, so it's all good. Um, so, um, what the, um, the then the college began to evolve, and eventually there were, you know, the cadets were there were no more cadets. We still have an ROTC program that's very very strong, um, that's supported by the Army um, and some alums who were who were still from Pennsylvania Military College. But it became Widener College, and then. Widener University and with each, and so it's a very agile institution, which fits our strategy right now. We have been able to adapt um, as the times have changed. And we still, from that legacy, very much hold on to the notion of service and leadership. 
And those are two things that we, we certainly service. And I talked about experiential learning, service learning, serving your country, serving your communities is very much a part of all of our programs. For example, I started by talking about the health sciences program. We have one of the nation's top pro bono community clinics where we serve people in our immediate city, which is very underserved in terms of healthcare, with services in physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech language pathology, social work, clinical psychology, and um, soon we will have physician assistant and nutrition we're planning. So this is a, a completely a pro bono clinic where we're services a part of even, you know, not just our undergraduate programs, but our graduate programs. And we have a leadership institute and a leadership certificate. Um, so we're, tr we're, we're trying to develop ethical leaders who um, have the, the, the courage and the competency to, to lead others. That comes from our legacy, that comes from our, our history. Um, and it's a proud history that we, um, we hold up and, and maintain um, even as we change and move forward. You know, one of the things that really stood out when researching your university is you have well over 6,000 students today, okay? It's incredible. You're, you're one of the top universities when it comes to social mobility. You have small size classes, less than 20. Many of your classes are 13 to one ratio. And earlier on, you mentioned the scholastic pursuit of an undergraduate. And for such a large school, have such small classes and also a capstone for many of your majors is very unique. Now, I understand small liberal college have it, but could you talk a little bit about the, the commitment to excellence and academics. And I know you have a strong engineering and also, you know, healthcare basis. How does all of this come together? How do you manage to, to do all of this? It's, 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 right. it's, it's, it's a lot of strategy. Yeah, there's a, it's a very, very diversified business model, really. I mean, we've got a, a, a range of programs that are, you know, many would look at them and say, you know, they're completely unrelated. I mean, how can you have a strong undergraduate psychology program, which we do, it's, it's very strong and, and very popular, and a strong robotics engineering program, and a strong MBA in healthcare management, and a strong nursing program. Um, these are all different, different areas. Um, how do you how do you do this? Um, and we that is how we're built. That is our that's our secret sauce, right? Like we have this diversity of programs. We recognize that that diversity is important from a from a, a business perspective, but also from the perspective of serving the needs of our community. We are able to be agile and to grow and shrink in different areas. So. Many of our programs are cyclical. Nursing, for example, is a cyclical um, profession. It grows and we've had classes that were over, you know, incoming undergraduate classes that were over 220 students. And we've had them as small as 120 students. Um, we are able to do that because we have enough different programs. One grows, one shrinks, 
we adapt that one that's shrinking perhaps to say, okay, what do we need to change here to better meet the needs? We have to be agile and we have to be able to, um, to move around. And it's, it, that's the fun of, of a university, of leading a university like Widener is it, we're not doing just one thing. We're doing a variety of different things. It keeps it really, really interesting and challenging. And we have a, a great leadership team and a great faculty and staff who are really committed to um, the complexity of what we do. You, colleges and universities are incredibly complex businesses in part because we're not just educating, we're also providing housing, you know, food, safety, entertainment, athletics, facilities, all these pieces. We're running a little city essentially. And um, with all of the services that are, that are expected there, um, and we are even more complex because of the range of, of programs um, that we offer. But it's, it's, that's what keeps us so strong and allows us to adapt so readily. And it shows uh, your number of students has grown by over 30% the last 10 years. You joined at 2016, I believe, right? Uh, yes. Is that correct? Yes. yes. And, and, and the, the impact of all of these strategies, it, it seems like while others are struggling, you all are growing. And I, I have this question for you because you're also the chair of the President's Alliance, okay? So I, I, this, this, we have a lot of presidents who also listen to our podcast. So uh, bear with me if I get a little nerdy on here. Um, you discuss the common ground and creating a civil discourse, okay? And there is a lot of discussions around the direction of higher education, whether it's from the OECD or UNESCO or World Bank or internally here. And I wanna go back a little bit in history. So if you look at you know, the role of education for democracy, which is what you touched upon in our last election, right? So if you go back to William James or John Dewey, in their seminal work on democracy and education, they placed education at the center of social reform. And how do you reconcile that with economization of education, neo neoliberalism, as, as college presidents are looking at this new directions on trying to balance democracy with financial needs? And where do you all sit in this triangle? Uh, and how do you see the future going? It's a great question. Um, the one thing I do want to say related to growth is like every, almost every other university, except the most elite universities, we certainly have been impacted by the pandemic. And so we do see some, um, uh, you know, reduction in that growth that we've seen, that we have been seeing because of the, the impact of the pandemic on um, families' finances and their decision-making and their and, and students' sense that, you know, I really need to work instead of going to school. So one of our biggest challenges in higher education is cost and how we make it more accessible um, for people. And the pandemic has certainly made that more challenging. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're, you're bringing up um, some, some great thinkers like John Dewey and, um, and his commitment to democracy as uh, education as democracy. And um, uh, I, to me, that's fundamental. Um, higher education is about creating a better world. It's about 
social responsibility. It's about social justice. That is not in any way con you know, contradictory to the idea that we also have to survive as a business. You can't, I mean, I don't think you can be successful if you can't show that you're producing graduates who make a difference in the world. And um, so I think, you know, part of it is how we shape our programs. And we think, I mean, our students in every program know that we're committed to making the world a better place. They have a responsibility when they graduate as individuals to contribute to their communities and to our, our, our entire world, to think, to think globally as well as locally and to make a contribution. They do service across all of our, um, our um, programs. They get engaged in communities that are very different from those that they may have grown up with or that they're familiar with. Um, if we're not educating for democracy and for a, 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 a better future, um, then we aren't doing our job. So that is fundamental, um, and that certainly comes, um, you know, alongside the financial realities. But really, before then, because if you're not doing that, this work has no meaning. Education is not just a business; it is an endeavor that's about making a difference and preparing people. Um, we our mission is. Um, empowering our community of learners to create better futures. If you're not helping them to create better futures, and we put an S on future to, to, to suggest that it's your own future, but it's also the future of your community. It's the future of our global community. That's what we do. If that's our mission, if we're not doing that, we are not successful no matter what our finances look like. And if we are doing that, the financial success comes with it. We can have programs that attract a lot of people that get people very good jobs and very good salaries when they graduate at the same time as we are preparing them as individuals to be socially responsible and to make a difference. That's the commitment that we have. Um, any last word, anything that we haven't covered about Widener University that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, I think another thing that makes us special is our students. Mm -hmm. Our students are so dedicated and ambitious and so grateful to have an opportunity for a college education. They are not... Um, you know, the, from privileged families or they don't come to us thinking, well, you know, I, you know, I deserve this. Just give me an A because I'm here. They work really hard. They take their, their, um, their, their program and their opportunities very, very seriously. Um, and they, they recognize that they have an opportunity that not everyone has. And that is so inspiring. I think it makes our work so much more meaningful because they are, are so committed. So let's say that I think Widener students are a special group of students. Um, they're 
they work hard. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're, they're idealistic, but they're not just idealistic. They're not just out there saying, we need to do X, Y, and Z, and the university needs to do X, Y, and Z. Their approach is, how can we <laughs> make a difference? What should we be doing so that we're making, you know, that we're creating better futures? And I think that that makes it a very exciting place to be. President Wellman, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, you can visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.